Thank you for joining the Capital Church Podcast. We believe that Jesus is for you and that through these expressions of our community, you will find hope, healing, and belonging. To learn more, join us live every week online and visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info at Amen. You may be seated. Thanks, Kai. What a story. What a reality. In Luke chapter 24, that story is also played out from another advantage point. And it's the story, it picks up in Luke 24, as John 20 talked about, it picked up in Luke 24 where Jesus doesn't encounter these disciples in a locked room, but he encounters two disciples on a roadway that's leading out of Jerusalem to Emmaus, and it's about a seven-mile journey, and their faith is deplete, they're discouraged, full of fear, and Jesus walks with them. So it's two stories that are in the same setting, and you see Jesus encounters a group of disciples locked in a room, and you see Jesus encounters two disciples walking on a long road. And so today, what I want to talk to us about is rediscovering joy in locked rooms and on long roads, out of John 20 and Luke 24. I don't know about you, I don't know if you've ever been scared of something, I'm sure you have. I can assume that you've been gripped by some type of fear, at least at some point in your life, and it could differ. Um, I remember our first year of marriage, my wife and I, uh, I had a dream that someone was breaking in our home, and I woke up and someone was trying to break in our home, and they were prying the front door uh, with some type of tool, um, but I was in good company. My wife hopped up and she says, get in the bathtub, lock the door, I'll take care of this. <laughs> and so I'm like, oh, I'm sticking with her for years. I've been with her for 23 years now. She protects me. I was terrified, you know? I don't know if you've ever been there in a, in a situation in life to where uh, you're, you're frightened and you're in an environment and the last thing you want to do is give shouts of joy or moments of praise. Um, sometimes there's fears that have completely made people just uh, unable to move. They've been debilitated. It's holding. It's frightening. And there's fears that, I mean, from, I mean, do you want to do this? Public speaking? We'll, sw- we'll swap, right? Sometimes there's people that just, they would break apart because of public speaking. Others, it's not public speaking, but maybe it's spiders or um, paper cuts. I know someone who's terrified of paper cuts. Um, I think real terrors would, and, and rightly so, John Veer talked about it a couple weeks ago, grizzly bears, you should be, you should have fear of a grizzly. Uh, I think if you're swimming in the ocean and you're, you're fine swimming with great whites, there's something wrong with you. Uh, if there's no sense of dread or fear, or you at least question, am I going to make it out of here? But there's fears that move just beyond just like public speaking and the animal kingdom, and they move more to the, the person, the soul, in, in my valued, the fear of not being valued, the fear of not being loved, the fear of being lost or alone. There's people that deal with even uh, various types of fears, even from more metaphysical fears of uh, what happens after I'm done here in this life. 
The fear of what's next. The fear of, will I be forgotten for eternity? The fear of um, the unknown. The fear of UFOs. I don't know. The fear of divine judgment. What if God's angry at me? What if he's mad at me? What if he never accepts me? There's, there's all these fears. And what we know in this setting in these two stories is that there was something that was... Uh, that, that happened, an event that happened, that transpired, that caused the disciples to respond the way that they did. And instead of responding, which is great faith and courage, because of what happens, the circumstances, it caused them to run in different directions and gather behind locked doors in fear of what happened to Jesus might happen to them. And the setting for, for the story, behind the story, for both cases is this, that for centuries the Jewish hope has been rooted in the coming of the Messiah. A hope for liberation, for the end of exile, for the defeat of evil, and that Yahweh would return to Zion. The expectation was that the Messiah would defeat evil, that he would rebuild the temple, and he would fight a, de- fight a decisive battle against these opposing powers. The Messianic agenda was aimed to do for Israel what Israel's prophets declared and prophesied would be done, that the Messiah would come to restore Israel and to bring the justice of God back into this broken world. But on the road to Emmaus with these two disciples, they feel like, and it seems to them that the opposite has happened. To them, they, they witnessed um, Christ on a cross barely recognizable. To them, that says that there's not victory that's happening. It's, it says to them that our team is being defeated and it looks like we're losing. It seems like we lost. And so they're, they're behind locked doors and they're walking these long journeys. I don't know about you, but sometimes the road seems really long when you're discouraged. It seems like uh, it's going to take forever to get there. And this is the picture in both camps. There's not a lot of energy in the, the, the hiding place for these disciples. I imagine that the, the dressers and the shelving and anything that's extra is pushed against the door. Uh, and they're letting each other know, don't be boisterous. Don't be loud. Let's, let's go low volume. If you can use sign language, use sign language. We don't want them to know we're in here because of what happened to Jesus could happen to us. We see the disciples, when they're on the road, they said that we thought that he was the one. The Messiah was supposed to take care of things, essentially. And they said, and now it's the third day. And in Jewish tradition, three days after you you die, your spirit's gone, and there's no return. So basically what they're saying to each other is that, man, we had it all wrong. What we were building our lives for is over. Where do we go and what do we do from here? So it wasn't like someone jumped out of the corner and just frightened them, and that was the result of why they're acting and responding the way they are. What happens is, what happened was that they, they, it seemed to them, and we know the whole story, but we have to put ourselves in this, this picture. It seemed to them that everything they put their hope and their heart and their energy and their life in blew up in front of them. And it was, it was no more. Now we got to take the fragments of life and figure out what in the world we're going to do with it without the, the Messiah. And what I love is 
I love Jesus' response in both these stories. And I'll get to that response in a minute, but just think about what the disciples are dealing with. And the reason why this is important as we get into this conversation of joy is because the disciples in Scripture, they represent us in Scripture. Like, we relate more to the disciples. I'm going to break it to some of you. You're going to break your hearts. Then we do Jesus. Like on our good days, we think we represent Jesus more, but mm, no, we, we represent at least one or many of the disciples and how they respond, or I should say react to uh, circumstances outside their control. But the disciples, they dealt with grief, this, this moment of, of grief. And this was the grief that their hope that they had placed in Jesus is, is now seems to be gone. There's the fear they, they dealt with, the fear of what happened to the Messiah, what happened to them. There, there was doubt. Did, did we put our hope in the wrong Messiah? Did we get the wrong guy? Did we mishear something? Did, did we not see the full story? And so with that, there was confusion. And I know in all of our lives, I think if we're honest, we've encountered doubt in our life. There's been um, fear and grief that circumstances and, and life just somehow brings to us. There's also confusion that surrounded the events of what transpired. And then there was, once again, just disillusionment. There's, there's these things that the air around them, the atmosphere was cloudy. It, it wasn't what you would call a joyous atmosphere. And that's the setting. And that's the setting that Jesus moves into. And that's why I love these stories is because behind locked doors and behind their hiding and their fear and whatever they identified that they're afraid of, I love the fact that it says Jesus showed up in their midst. It doesn't go into the metaphysics of it. It doesn't say how he made it through the, the plaster, the brick, the drywall, the two-by-fours, um, however they built back in the day. Um, it just shows that he's in the midst. And I, Can you imagine that? Your focus is all your energy, weight on the door, keeping the bad things out. And then behind you, Jesus is like, what's up, guys? And they hear a familiar voice, and instantly what happens? What instantly happens is that the anxious levels, the fearful levels, the heightened panic just begins to dissipate. It's like someone pulled the plug out of the tub and all of that water just begins to drain out. And there's like, there's a peace that comes from the person that's talking to them. And what you see is this is what Jesus does. I want you you write this down if you're taking notes. Uh, There's several things he does in both of these stories. The first thing he does is he brings himself into their space. So number one, it's his presence. His presence fills that room behind locked doors And he begins to reassure them that he will never leave them, nor will he forsake them. He reassures them by his resurrected body and presence that he's defeated the great separator, death. That the one thing that could separate man from men would be death itself. And Jesus showcases that even death can't be a separator for the love and the presence of God from God to mankind. And he's in their room with them, in their fear, with their anxiety, with their panic, with their questions, with their grief, with their doubt, all those things, Jesus is, is present. And we see that not only is he present, not only does he encourage them, um, but 
we see that he begins to speak words of life to them. And three times in John's account, we see that Jesus speaks the words, peace be with you. Peace be still, which is shalom. So three times in uh, the book of John, in verse 19, verse 20, and 26, we see that he says, shalom, shalom, shalom. And what is this? This is the vision that God has for humanity. It's a picture of wholeness and flourishing. So what's he saying? He comes into their moments of doubt, grief, despair, and confusion, and he begins to speak wholeness. He begins to speak uh, life. He begins to speak health. Uh, he begins to put to wrong or put to right what's been wronged in their life. And that's the picture of shalom. Shalom is the picture of reconciliation. And we serve a God who's the God who's able to reconcile. And he restores relationships. And this is what he's doing in the midst of this. Because they thought their relationship was broken because of death as the separator. Jesus comes right into the room. And he, he, he sets this picture of reconciliation. A restoration of relationship between the Father and us. And then with us to others. This is the picture of shalom. The way the world's supposed to be. What's the opposite of shalom? Sin. Sin comes in as the great intruder, is like the parasite. Sin's like the tick that you don't want on you. And how it lives, it has to live off another life source. And so it comes in to disrupt, it comes in to try and discourage, it comes in to try and bring the spirit of death with it and fear that is immobilizing. And Jesus comes in and says no to all that by the work of the wonder of the resurrection defeating death, hell, and the grave. And he comes in and says, I'm offering the, the opposite of that. A life of fullness and wholeness. So he brings his presence. He communicates the, the, the message of shalom. We see that thirdly, he brings confirmation that he is who he says he is. I love the fact that Thomas does not intimidate Jesus. Nor does Jesus get mad at Thomas for his questions or his seemingly unbelief. I think Thomas, for all you Enneagram followers, I think he's a five. Um, I think he's just very curious. I think he needs data. I think he needs to know just a little more about the situation before he gives his whole life to it. And I love the fact that Jesus didn't keep his hands by his side and say, you just got to believe. You just got to believe. I love the fact that Jesus met Thomas right where he's at and showed him signs of the punishment, signs of the crucifixion. And upon seeing Jesus, his scars, seeing his wounds, what do, we, what do we see Thomas do? The light bulb goes on. And Thomas gives his, his whole life from that point forward yielded to the, the mission and the purpose of, of Jesus the Messiah. I love the fact that he comes into our story even today. There's some of us, even in the room today, you, you have similar questions. You just don't know about Jesus. I don't know about this whole Christianity thing. I don't know. I have a lot of questions. And I would challenge you this. That's fine having a lot of questions. My challenge is this. If you have a lot of questions, be okay and be open to asking those questions to your Heavenly Father who says he's willing to listen. He cares for you. It says, cast all your cares, your anxiety on him. Why? Because he cares for you. What's that a picture of? That's a picture of prayer. He's invited, he, right? It's a picture of like, hey, cast everything on me because I care for you. And I'm going to explain to you the things that don't make sense right now. 
I just love the gentleness of Jesus and his persistent. Even though, hear me now, even though there's a locked door, he shows up and gets in. And I'm going to have faith for some of you today. Some of you have locked doors and you're like, I'm not letting Jesus in. Okay, but guess what? He still has a way of getting in and influencing your life so you can either rejoice with him or let him just be a pain point to you. But the God that I read in scripture, I know this, he doesn't give up. Why? Because he loves us fiercely. So much so that he gives his one and only son to die on a cross for us. That shows me a God who's not willing to give up on anybody at any time for any reason. So if you think you're that sole story, I'm going to tell you today, you're not. God went to the cross for you because he loves you that much. Where does our joy come from? It comes from knowing stories like this. Realities of a scripture like this where Jesus comes into our space regardless of what we're going through and what we're holding on to and what we're scared of. And he says, I'm going to make you into a whole person, spirit, soul, and body. Your testimony is going to be a testimony of flourishing because of the works of what I've done and I'm doing in you. So he confirms who he is to, to Thomas and the crew. And then I love what he does. He commissions them. Uh, as, as you read, there's many miracles that were done that weren't recorded. He says this was done for their sake so that they might believe, so that they might be edified to not question again, but continue to yield from that point forward, leave the locked door and the, uh, the, the door that's been closed and to return once again to a place of difficulty, culture, uh, and be an influence with their life. And as you look at every disciple, once they encounter Jesus, and once they understood that this is a real story, that he is true to every word that he speaks, every promises he makes, they, they bent their whole lives in the direction of not running away anymore, but giving their lives for the sake of the gospel of Jesus. And then you move to the story in Luke 24, and it's a similar story, and it leads to the same place, because these two disciples, once they had this encounter with Jesus, they move back to Jerusalem, and they find the other disciples, and they begin to share their encounter that they had with the risen Christ. And then, upon their reciting of what happened, Jesus shows up again. And I want you to think about it. In John 8, or John 20, it says that eight days later, after he made the first appearance in the locked room, eight days later, he does it again, which is a, a backing point to the fact that he does not give up on revealing who he is to anybody. Um, and today, you might be in that place of question. I'm telling you, um, God does not give up on you. So continue to keep an open heart, open mind, and open hands to just what he might do. Especially if you're a serious person, you really, 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 really want to know why you are made and what your purpose is and why you are created. Uh, there's only one source that can give you the right answer to that question, and his name is Jesus. Jesus not only goes to locked doors and locked rooms where people are hiding, but he, he goes and meets people on long roadways where instead of walking at an average gait, that they are more like trudging, like to trudge, like heavy-footed. Yeah. Like you drag your feet 
heads down to the ground. This is the picture of the disciples because they just left Jerusalem. They're going the opposite direction of where they're supposed to go because all the action is in Jerusalem. It says that Jesus' face was always towards Jerusalem, meaning that he was always moving in that direction because of what he was doing for all of humanity. You see them, and this is the picture that the writer gives us, they're going the opposite direction. What does it indicate? It indicates that their team lost and they're not staying around for any type of after party. There's no celebration in the streets because their team lost and they got to get home because of what's happening within their lives for their own sake. I love the fact that Jesus moves into their space and walks with them even though they're trudging. And he, he does something beautiful. He asks the question, what are you talking about? And what does Jesus do with that? What's he doing? He's inviting himself into their conversation. And in doing that, he's inviting them into what he's about ready to share. And I love the fact that Jesus lets them explain themselves. And they're like, are you the only one in Jerusalem? That is like not clued in on what has happened these last few days? We thought that he was gonna be the Messiah. We thought he was gonna be the one. It seemed that he was going to be the one that was going to put the world to right, but it's already the third day. It's, it's dead and gone, and Jesus just lets them talk. This is a picture of prayer. Yeah. That's right. Have you ever read the Psalms? Yes. Have the Psalms to you ever sound and felt like that the writers are complaining a little bit? Have you ever read David's writings where he says, ask the question, why, Lord, have you forsaken me? Is he being accurate? Had God, had Yahweh forsaken David? No. So it probably should have sounded more like God. Why does it feel like you're forsaken? Have you ever felt like God has forsaken you? Have you ever felt like you've been looked over, passed over, and that you've been forgotten? One challenge is that that's different than the reality of actually being forsaken and looked over and forgotten. And Jesus proves to them in that moment that they have not been looked over, that they have not been forgotten and they've not been forsaken. He's walking right with them. And as they explain their side, I love what Jesus does. He then is like, probably clears his voice and he begins to deliver one of the greatest master classes on the history of the Messiah prophetic teachings that any audience have ever heard in their lifetime. He walks with these disciples as they're moving from Jerusalem to Emmaus and over these miles he begins to tell the disciples, these two, why it had to happen the way it happened because it always involved this sacrificial suffering love. The Messiah had to go through suffering and punishment and death so that the whole picture could be complete to where God would rescue a world that has been broken and robbed and perverted and targeted by sin. And then he takes them from Moses to the prophets and through the Psalms. That's a teaching. You want me to go there today in the next 20 minutes? Like, please, no. That would take us in. I'm, how long was this conversation? But it's, it's Jesus taking them from Moses, from the law. And what does he do? He pinpoints every place in the Old Testament that gives a key and an insight to the Messiah's work and activity and the journey of it all. And they're no longer complaining if you read. 
They're not interrupting him. They're like, but, but, but. They're not interrupting him. He's speaking. He has their full attention. And he acts like he's going to leave once they get to their destination and go further. But they're so enthralled with this person that they just don't quite know who he is yet that they invite him in to have dinner. I love the fact that any time that God reveals himself to anybody, oftentimes it involves eating food. I mean, if you can't smile and clap on that one, like, thank the Lord. I mean, Pastor Chris mentioned a couple weeks ago, John 21, 12? What's it say? Come have breakfast? Like, that's one of the greatest things you could say post-resurrection. He's making breakfast for his disciples? He's, he's eating in his post-resurrected body. The food's not falling out of him. He's walking through, getting in, and we don't know how, into rooms that the doors are locked. Right? And what we do is he sits down with the disciples, these two, and as they, I love this, it says, as he breaks the bread, they immediately know. Their eyes open. It's like the aha moment, like, oh. It's probably like, I knew it. I just, I had an idea, but it's just too good to be true because we, we saw him mangled on the cross. He was not moving. We saw them move him into a tomb and they put a stone outside the tomb that was not movable by a couple thieves in the night. No way. But their eyes are open when he breaks the bread. What's, what's the breaking of the bread? It's, it's the Eucharist. It's, the, it's communion. He breaks the bread and their eyes are open. But then f- for them, they're like, oh man, as soon as it happened, what does scripture say happened? It says he vanished. But what does it say happened to them after he vanished? And they realized that the person, the traveler they're on the road with, that was speaking to them about the history of scripture and pointing out these key moments of the Messiah's victory and the way things had to be, they realized once that happened, they couldn't stay where they're at. And it says that immediately that very hour, they make their way back to Jerusalem. I just want you to see the picture of what happens when Jesus comes into a life of a person and the light bulb goes on. What happens is life is hard. Life is a struggle. It's like a constantly you, not in your car, you walking through an automated um, car wash place without your car. That's life to so many people. You just do that on repeat. And it hits you in the face and it gets in your eye. And it's no comfort. It's all pain. It's... There's, there's no future with it. There's no hope with it. It's just on this continual repeat cycle of some excitement, disappointment, some excitement, disappointment, 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 disappointment. And then Jesus comes into your disappointed little journey. And what happens is by way of his being of his presence and by the way of the truth that he's defeated death, hell, and the grave and by way of his patience and by way of his ability to speak to us in ways that make sense, it turns the light on in our life and we realize, whoa, there's way more than what we've just been in and what we've been stuck in and what we're going through. There is a much greater story that God has called me into and I'm really starting to get this whole idea thing on shalom that's about flourishing. It's not about being under. It's not about being stepped 
stepped on. It's not about being lost or forsaken. Come on, but it's about being in this welcoming, working relationship with the King of Heaven that He calls me into. Are you kidding me? As the moment, as you start to realize that, you walk differently. How fast did it take for them to get seven miles from where they were back to Jerusalem? I don't know, but I, if I was a betting man, I would say it was a lot faster than going from Jerusalem to Emmaus in their discomfort and in their rejection. What happens is when Jesus gets a hold of our lives, there's an excitement that springs up within us. It's not something that you can get from a fireworks show. I love fireworks. The, the city loves fireworks. Our nation loves fireworks. We spend millions of dollars on fireworks every year. Actually, a few times. New Year's and the 4th of July. And people crowd in from all over. People say, today, any other day, I don't like crowds. Today, I love crowds because of the fireworks. Parking's crazy. The freeways are crazy. We sit in grass that's dirty but we don't care because in a moment there's going to be a display in the air that we're going to look at each other and we're going to point like, oh my. <laughs> did you see that? I mean, like, just amazed at what humans can create, how much they spend on that. The bummer about fireworks is that they end. Yeah. And there's just darkness <laughs> and smell of burnt hair and smoke and then you get in your car and now traffic is a problem to you the crowd now is a burden to you you now you put like anxiety on pause going there and now it just kicks back on at a whole nother level and I'm not trying to make you sad today I'm just saying that's the reality of when we search for something that doesn't have a lifetime of fulfillment See, Jesus is a lifetime of fulfillment. Jesus is a lifetime of wonder. He's a lifetime of purpose. He's a lifetime of meaning. He has meaning even in my pain. He has meaning even when I choose on certain days to lock the door because fear seems to be winning. I love the fact that Jesus comes in and he reminds me, remember, remember, remember. Shane, do you need me to take you back through the prophets? Do you need me to take you back to the law? Do you need me to remind you about what was spoken in the Psalms? You want to listen to the echoes of Peter and Paul and the writers of the New Testament? And what does God do? He, he reminds us, and what happens? Joy is, is, fireworks have never done that to me. A nice home has never done that. And I'm not, I'm not hating on all these things. I love the fact that there's different comforts that we can enjoy in, in our day and age. But I just want to challenge today that if we're putting all of our energy and if we're trying to figure out in our life that meaning comes from all these things and what we build of our lives, I'm going to tell you, we're going to be disappointed every single time. Meaning and purpose this is where I get into joy. Joy is everything to do with the person of Jesus, the presence of God. In our life, not just in a annual moments at one time, but every day of our lives. When you look at joy, and this is where I think the disciples there in the locked room 
and on the long road, they begin to rediscover what joy is all about. It's centered on the person, the centered on the person of Jesus. Joy is the emotional state of one enters life, as well as one's response to God's salvic work in our life. It's a combination of celebration, hope, enthusiasm, exuberance, and happiness. Joy describes our emotional world as well as a concrete expression of what God has done for us. That's from the great scholar, Chris Wilde. You're supposed to say amen to that, not, oh, I don't know. He is on his birthday. Joy is a deep-rooted emotion that transcends happiness and pleasure. It's the result of living in alignment with God's will and experiencing his presence. Joy is just not an emotion. It's a whole way of being. It's just not being happy. It's having a deep sense of well-being that's grounded in the knowledge that we're loved by God and that we're part of his plan for the world. N.T. Wright says that joy is the flag flown high above the castle of the heart when the king is in residence. And if you grew up in church, that just reminds you of song, didn't it? He also says that joy is the echo of God's life within us, which he got from C.S. Lewis, who says joy is the echo of heaven. And we all can represent that if we allow Jesus to be the very center point of our life. And if we value his presence more than anything else. If you were to drive by my house, you'd see that I have a fountain in my yard. But to both, I think, my kids and some of their friends, they never knew I had a, we had a fountain in our yard. And our neighbors didn't even know we had a fountain in our yard. But it's sitting about 10 feet off the road, right in the middle of our front yard. But the problem is there's no water in it. It wasn't turned on. That fountain was given to me like two years ago, and it took about eight men, and I just kind of was the foreman, uh, just kind of point where I wanted to move that thing, and it's in our front yard, and so I'm always excited every year because I have irrigation water, and it's mostly free. Thank Lucky Peak and the Lord uh, for <laughs> snow and rain, and it, the pond gets filled up, and then it gets access to, to our home, and I'm like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to, I don't have it plugged in, there's no power to that fountain, but I'm going to bring a hose out that's connected to irrigation, and I'm going to put in that fountain up high so it drains down. But I had to do it in a way that, like, I didn't want to do it, like, where I get out the duct tape and just kind of throw it in there, just make it just not look pretty. But I was able to hide it a little bit, enough to where I was able to, to trick people, and they thought it was really plugged in. And I turned that fountain, the water on, and it took a little while to fill up, and as it began to fill up, it started making noise. And started overflowing. And I'm not kidding. People, we have a lot of walkers, and they're like, this is their walk. And they hear the fountain, and they're like. Fountains have a funny way of just stopping traffic. You're like, that's just, that's, and they're not, I mean, it's not that significant. It's just water. Flowing down, but I realized, like, whoa! And even that day, there's a number of people that are actually asking about our fountain. You got a fountain? When did you get the fountain? You just got the fountain? I'm like, no, we've had it for a while, two years. But they just noticed that we had the fountain because there's water flowing in it, 
and it's making noise, and the fountain's alive. You're like, the fountain's alive? Well, it's not alive. It's alive in the fact that it's, it's plugged in, and it's, it's teeming. And I thought that today about in our, in our own life, I wonder, if us, I wonder how many of us can identify with the fountain. It's there. We just haven't been fully open to allow the Holy Spirit just to fill our lives on a regular basis to where people are just, they're, this is what we're used to. Just, we're just so busy. I just wonder, I don't know if we really let the Holy Spirit get a hold of our lives, if people would be going, hey, what's up? I don't know why I'm talking to you right now. Somebody just got my attention. I don't know. Like, I don't, I think if we just give a little more attention to the Holy Spirit, because that was the kicker at the end of it all. Because Jesus says to both crews, he says, listen, I've done these miracles so that you might believe, so to encourage you in your mission to fulfill what I've created you to fulfill. And I love in Luke 24, at the very end, it's just I mean, what a beautiful gospel. At the very end of Luke 24, he says the instruction he gives to the disciples. He says, hang out here a little longer and wait for the promise of the Father. And if you ever go into Acts and read the, the history book of Acts, you realize what are they waiting for? They're waiting for the person, the paraclete of God, the Holy Spirit to come and to do what? And to overwhelm their life with power so they can be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You, you want joy in your life? Understand this, that, that it comes from being in the presence of Jesus. It comes from making the presence of Jesus not a marginal category, but being front and center. It means that you have to, and I have to, we have to pivot our life uh, and just not include him in something. We have to make sure that everything in our life is prioritized around him being first and central. And what happens is when Jesus is first and central in our life, you can't stop the joy of God being complete and overflowing in you. The problem is when we make him just a subcategory, uh, what happens is we feel like we're deplete in so many areas and we wonder where the joy's at. Well, I'll tell you where the joy's at. It's where you put him. Now, as you bring him into your, your world and you allow him to speak to you and you allow change to take place, what, what happens is, is remarkable. Joy begins to increase in you. And it just doesn't stay with you, but it begins to attract the attention of other people. So how do we, how do we encourage and how do we practice joy? Well, I think it comes by we practice joy uh, by me making sure that we are presence people, meaning that we give room for the presence of God. Come on, we give room for everything else in our home. There's a space, I think, right? There's bedrooms that have specific names. Uh, you have placements for couches and for sofas and for throws and for pillows. And we spend a lot of time with color wheels and figure out, okay, what the color of the wall is going to be and what's the texture of the ceilings, you know. Uh, we, we think through what are all the accessories of the home. I wonder if we took that much energy and we put that into, okay, how am I building the presence of my home on a spiritual level? And I wonder what that would do then to the joy in our life. I don't think it would de be deplete. I think it would be, as Jesus says, complete joy and overflowing. 
So I think it comes, we have to give time and space and energy to Jesus. We have to, we have to look for Jesus all the time. And we have to invite him into, into our world, into our life. We have to invite him into conversations if you're married with your spouse. If you're not married, you have to invite him into conversations with your friends. We have to invite him into places of our work. We have to invite him into conversations with neighbors and strangers. Uh, we, we have to be aware that uh, we are presence people first and the presence of God goes with us and we're carriers of that. Uh, not only do we practice the presence, but we have to practice obedience. And this is a way of growing in joy. We see in John chapter 15, and I'm almost done here. As the Father has loved me, so I've loved you. Abide in my love. And if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be what? Full. So there's a connection between the obedience of our life with God and our joy being complete and being full. Um, I think what the enemy would love to do is to try and disrupt uh, the, the frequency of heaven and try and disrupt what God is saying in our life. I, I think we have to be disciplined to be more obedient than we have in the past. And I would even say, even in the little things, how do you practice obedience? In the big things? No. I think it happens in the little things. I think it's the, the subtle obedience that's so important. It's the, it's the prop from the Holy Spirit. Say, hey, don't pass that person. Or already did. Fine, turn around. But then what? Share your story. Ask them their name. You know, there's something powerful, but just pausing long enough to be with someone that's a stranger and asking them their name. Kind of doing what Jesus did on both the locked room environment and the road. What are you talking about? What's your name? And then it just could be, and I believe that he does this all the time, he leads you into a way to encourage them right where they're at. Speak in a way that, I mean, can you imagine a complete stranger coming out of nowhere? Showing up in your world and you're struggling and you don't know up from down and down from up. And some stranger comes along. And said, you don't know me from anybody, but I just want to tell you, I don't know what you're struggling with, but I know that God's for you. Do, I mean, do you know what that would do? Think about what it would do to maybe you and your past. Maybe it's been part of your testimony. But think about if the church, if we were like that, if we were dispensers of joy, and if we were carriers of his presence, and we just tried to dispense it wherever we could go, because we know it's just not a fictional fairy tale story, but it has life-changing power to take disciples that are fearful and trying to save their own life to where they all end, except John, a martyr death. That, to me, says that they really believed what was presented to them in the way, in the mission of Jesus. So obedience is big. And I think even this week, let's be challenged as the Holy Spirit uh, just prods our heart and speaks to us. Let's be challenged even in the little things to obey fully and to obey quickly. And just see what that does to the joy table in our life. How else do we practice joy? We, we practice joy by, by spiritual disciplines. And I won't get into it, but... I think there's an there's there's importance to not just every once in a while and not just when we feel like it. I just think some of the best prayer moments for me is when I didn't want to pray, didn't feel like praying. The last thing I want to do, did not want to worship. There's been moments in my life where I've just sat and just been, felt like gripped by some form of despair and I just can't get, 
I can't get through it. And the, my wife, who saved me from that home intruder, she comes along and uh, she's like, let's, let's pray. I'm like, I don't want to pray. So let's pray. And it's amazing that as we begin to pray, the circumstances don't automatically change right away. But what changes is, whoo, my heart, man. It's like fountain just got turned on. And it just begins just to bubble and flow. And I begin to like, oh, yeah, regardless. Yeah, that's right. Joy is not dependent on my circumstances. It doesn't come and go like the tide. But my joy is anchored into something that is more stable than the planet Earth itself. The reality of Jesus as my King and my Savior. And if he could get through the abuse of death and put death on display and make an embarrassment of death, what can he do with my current situation right now? Oh, the joy of the Lord is my strength. The joy, the joy, the joy of the Lord is our strength forever and for always. Lord, you are my God. I'll exalt you. I'll praise your name, for you have done extraordinary things and executed plans made long ago, exactly as you decreed. Oh, the fountain's being turned on. Like, that verse alone, and if that didn't do it for you, you keep completely safe the people who maintain their faith and those who trust in you. Isaiah 26.3. Isaiah 41.10. Don't be afraid. For I am with you. Don't be frightened, for I am your God. I strengthen you. Yes, I help you. Yes, I'll uphold you with my victorious right hand. The Word, Jesus, the, the, the God-man made flesh, the Word wrapped up in flesh is with the disciples, and He's repeating Scripture to them, and their hearts are being stirred, that joy is returning to them. My challenge for us today as the church is... Let's give plenty of room for the promises of God that have been already recorded and written in Scripture. Man, let this have space in our heart and our life. Let's be good to confess it to our family, confess it to our life, confess it to our, our pets. I don't care. Walk around your house and say, let me hear about your loyal love in the morning, for I trust in you. Show me the way that I should go, because I long for you, Psalms 20, verse 6. Walk around the house, Psalms 125, and declare, those who trust in the Lord, they're like Mount Zion. Regardless of my circumstance, those who trust in God are like Mount Zion? Yeah, that's me, God. I'm like Mount Zion because I trust in you. It cannot be upended, and it will endure forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people now and forever. Picture that. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, the Lord surrounds his people now and forever. The psalmist also says, and I'm almost done here, that he surrounds us with shouts of deliverance. So whatever you're going through, know this, that the God of all eternity says, I surround you today. You might not hear it, but every demonic entity in the cosmos knows that as Yahweh shouts around you, that every obstacle, everything that's come to steal, kill, and destroy is limited and defeated. Why? Because we don't serve a story. We don't serve a fairy tale. We serve a real walking story, a reality that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he's here today. 
to enter my locked room and your locked room and your long road and my long road. And he's here to walk with us and lead us out of a place that has been limiting into a place of wholeness and flourishing, shalom, so that we can be what God from the beginning of ages designed and created us to be. People on mission for him and covenant with him and people that are leading others to the beautiful reality that Jesus is, is their king. So Father Day, with every eye closed, head bowed, Lord, thank you for the work of your son, the work of Jesus in each of our lives. Thank you today that even over these last few moments that you've opened some of our eyes just to see the wonder of who you are. Lord, I'm praying that for anyone that needs just the fullness of joy to be restored and returned to their life, that God, you would, you would do that now. You would do that now, that Lord, those who have been maybe wore out and worn down by the current circumstance of, of their life, grateful, God, that you're the God who moves into that place and you bring a freshness of hope. You change our despair and our fear to joy and hope. You take us in our place of being frightened and afraid and you overwhelm us just with a spirit of courage that's rooted in the reality that you are the resurrected king. You defeated death, hell, and the grave. And thank you, God, that every heart here matters to you. Every story matters to you. Every person matters to you. You don't overlook us, but you're right in the midst of it with us. Thank you for your real, working, walking, forming presence within our life. I pray that our lives would, even today, if there's things that we have to give up and let go of, that we would be obedient to do that. That we would pivot our life around your presence and around the person of Jesus. Lord, that we would surrender to you with all of our heart and with all of our soul, giving our entire life to you. Lord, in exchange, God, that you would give everything, your whole life, your whole being to us, that we might be people of mission, of joy, celebration, and thanksgiving. If you have your communion element with you, If you haven't said yes to Jesus, my challenge is that you say yes right now. That was the word that Rob challenges us with, is that a yes to Jesus just transforms and changes everything in your life. And I want us just to encourage us that this bread, what it represents, I love the fact that when Jesus broke it amongst his disciples in Luke 24, that those two disciples, their eyes were open to the reality of who, who was in their midst. You look at the bread, you take the bread, this wafer, and it represents the body that was broken for us. What we deserved, what was warranted to us, Jesus says, I'm going to step in and take their place. And the bread represents brokenness that Christ took on so that we might be whole in our life today. And as we take the bread, could you just, before you take it, say, just right where you're at, and you don't have to be loud, but just thank you for your work on the cross for my life. You can just make this your own personal prayer. You don't have to pray this specific way, but I'm just helping you. Jesus, thank you for your brokenness so that I might experience your wholeness. Thank you for being the one who 
went to the cross for my sin, our sin. Thank you for that exchange that we have today because of the reality of who you are. He took the bread, he broke it, he blessed it, he gave it to his disciples, he says, eat this in remembrance of me, let's eat together. He then took the cup and with the disciples pre-resurrection as he's making his way to Jerusalem he says that this cup represents his blood which represents everlasting covenant a brand new new covenant that you no longer that of the old sin nature because the sacrifice blood of Jesus it's cleansed us from from sin. It's cleansed us from the work of darkness, and we have new life because of the work and the achievements of Jesus. So as we take the cup today and drink it, let's do it in remembrance of Jesus, thanking him for that life that he gives. Now I just want us to do one more thing. We're going we're gonna to end with this song, and then it's just going to be a quick little transition. So if you have to leave, I get it, but just asking if, if you can stay, just stay for a moment. Some of you sang the song, okay. You sang it okay. I felt it. I sang it well because of first service. I was ready to go. I was ready to pick Rob up and body slam him <laughs> just on the whole. What the cross does, it still saves us. Think about just what I've shared just the last few moments. And let's sing this song with some conviction. And I mean, believe in this. Just allow God, whatever needs to be exchanged in your life, whatever you're going through, whatever difficulties there, put your trust, your hope, your faith, and your confidence in, in the one who can make all things right. Can you stand with me? And just let's end with this worship song. Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to give towards this ministry, learn more about our church and events, or are in need of prayer, please visit capitalchurch.co.